Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. There is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Not the words of an angry leprechaun. That is how Rudy Giuliani's lawyer described his client's assets at bankruptcy court this morning. The lawyer went on to explain that not only is Giuliani currently suspended from practicing law and unable to make money that way, but Mr. Giuliani is earning very little income from his podcast and his radio show, making him exactly like almost every other podcaster in America. Now, technically, today was a very small procedural victory for Giuliani. The bankruptcy judge granted Giuliani an exemption, and that exemption allows Mr. Giuliani to try to challenge the $148 million in damages that he owes Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss for publicly and repeatedly defaming them. The exemption doesn't mean that Mr. Giuliani can challenge the fact that he defamed them. That has been settled in court. It just means he can apply to challenge the cash amount he owes in damages. The fact that this is considered a victory for Rudy Giuliani shows how much his fortunes have changed, both literally and figuratively. The speed of justice in this country is sometimes frustratingly, aggravatingly slow, but justice does come. Late last night, we got the news that the Justice Department is seeking a six-month prison sentence and a $200,000 fine for Trump White House advisor Pete Navarro for contempt of Congress. Mr. Navarro was a mainstay on Fox News, and he put out a report known literally as the Navarro Report, alleging widespread election fraud in six battleground states, despite having no real evidence, mostly because none actually exists. That report then became the basis of a plan laid out by Navarro to have Republicans in the Senate echo Trump's election lies and stall the certification of the election on January 6th, and thereby give Vice President Mike Pence some cover to reject the certification of the electors. But when the House January 6th committee subpoenaed Mr. Navarro for testimony about all of that, he refused. Navarro claimed he couldn't testify because the information the committee wanted was protected by executive privilege. And while he was saying he couldn't talk to the January 6th committee because of executive privilege, Mr. Navarro then published multiple books detailing the whole thing. Points for bravado, but gravity is still a thing. And Giuliani and Navarro are being held accountable for their actions, albeit slowly. Which leads me to what is maybe the most important question of our era and definitely the most important question of the 2024 election. How long until Donald Trump himself is held to account. The legal experts we speak to regularly on this network, on this show, believe that the case most likely to put Donald Trump in a courtroom before November of 2024 is Special Prosecutor Jack Smith's federal election interference case. And today we got lots of news about the timing of that case. First, here was Attorney General Merrick Garland talking about Jack Smith's cases today. The department has policies about steering clear of elections. Um, is there a date in your mind where it might be too late to bring these trials to fruition? Uh, again, to stay out of out of the way of the elections and, uh, as the department policies. Well, I just say you know what I said, which is that the cases were brought last year. Prosecutor has urged speedy trials, uh, uh, with which I agree, um, and this is now in the hands of the judicial system. 
What the attorney general is talking about here is the Justice Department's so-called 60-day rule. It is a guideline that the department doesn't announce an investigation or indict or do anything publicly to a politician within 60 days of an election. Attorney General Garland today made clear that that rule is no longer applicable here. The Justice Department brought its cases against Trump last year. They are now on public record. The proverbial cat is out of the bag. But what about the timing? When do these trials actually start? The attorney general answered that question today as well. The matter is now in the hands of the trial judges to determine when the trials will take place. That means the ultimate decision, as far as timing, for Trump's federal election interference case lies with the federal judge overseeing the case, Judge Tanya Chutkin. And yesterday, Judge Chutkin hinted that she may ultimately delay the scheduled March 4th trial date. Now, that's not coming entirely out of nowhere. This case has effectively been frozen since early December. Nothing has been able to advance for five weeks now. The case is paused while Trump appeals a decision about whether he can have the entire case tossed out on the premise that he should have presidential immunity. We are expecting a ruling from the appeals court on that any day now, and then this will likely head to the Supreme Court. And it's not just me saying that. Donald Trump is saying that. He's obsessed with it, actually. Here he was talking about it last night, not as some aside, but as his closer. What is your closing message to the people of New Hampshire? Uh, it's very simple. It's make America great again. But I think very important before we do this, because you were talking about the Supreme Court, the president of the United States, and I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about any president, has to have immunity. My closing message, make America great again. How? By making it so that I can commit crimes without accountability. Actually, so all presidents can commit crimes equally. That's actually Trump's message to voters right now. Vote for me so I don't go to jail. Now, obviously, there is the question of whether Trump's immunity claims have any merit. But the more pressing question is, what impact does this ongoing delay have on the justice system holding Donald Trump accountable? Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and co-host of the indispensable MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, and Katie Benner, reporter for The New York Times. Thank you both for being here tonight. Um, Andrew, there is a lot of, well, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but you sort of foresaw how we might get into a problem, um, a problematic area calendar-wise. Yep. At the beginning of this, right, I mean— Talk to me a little bit about the way the Justice Department pursued the January 6 cases at sort of the inception of these investigations and how that was um, potentially problematic even back then. So I think the big picture is that the judicial system and investigating and prosecuting and giving a defendant time to prepare a ca you know, the case um, that's part of due process, all of that is not built to deal with the problem that we are having now. Um, it, is, it is a long-term um, sort of process. Mm -hmm. um, and we are dealing with a issue of trying to have accountability. Um, and Judge Chutkin actually made a finding that, that we should have accountability yes. in March. To be clear, she is not intentionally wanting to put this off. Um, she is doing it because of these Necessity. appeals. Exactly. Um, so, you know, going to your, but to answer your question directly in terms of 
that's something that if you're in the Justice Department, you know that there is that time delay. Mm -hmm. um, and you're thinking, OK, if there are these crimes in January 6, which, by the way, we all witnessed. So this isn't something where you had to. Yes, you have to look to build the case, but it's not like you are sitting there going, gee, I wonder if there was a crime committed. Right. Um, and there obviously, you know, I wouldn't say obviously, in my view, there was delay in terms of getting the case off the ground. And Jack Smith was dealt a tough hand in that he was given great facts. You know, both of his cases are incredibly strong, but, you know, he had to um, sort of bring them very quickly because he was only appointed not that long ago. Yeah. Um, so he, it's really not on his watch. But I do think part of the reason we're in this sort of looking at the clock so closely. Every is, week but, counts. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the things you can do just quickly during the math, March 4th, um, that was the date that Judge Chutkin picked. Um, we know where we are. Now we know what the delay is of five weeks. So at the earliest, she even if she was given a green light today, today. you have to sort of add in five weeks. So you know that's you get to do sort of mid-April, mm -hmm. um, and so that's certainly you know before the election. But we just still don't have the decision. We don't know what they're going to rule. We don't know if the Supreme Court is going to weigh in on this. So that could be more delay. Final point before Katie <laughs> talks is. Um, just remember the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, their case is scheduled for the end of March. They're willing to take a back seat to, um, to Jack Smith's case. But if this delay goes on, the Much one thing longer. I would, yeah, the one thing I will say is that case will go first. The Manhattan case, which was brought first, will actually be tried first, um, because if this, you know, because the D.C. case, which obviously is a more important, a bigger case, but there may be enough time to do both. You know, um, Katie, there and I will credit Nicole Wallace with banging this drum loudly, asking the question, why didn't the Justice Department begin this investigation in with with more alacrity as far as pursuing Donald Trump in terms of accountability and those in his inner circle? You have reporting about the notes of caution in, that were being sounded inside the Justice Department long after January 6th in terms of, you know, pursuing Trump and the way in which there was concern about the department being seen as partisan. Um, certainly Trump aided in that by calling a lot of these investigations witch hunts. But can you talk about how that that caution immediately after January 6th inside the Department of Justice may have actually led us to this moment here where we're literally, I mean, if if you're looking, if you're a voter looking to try and make a decision about whether you want to choose a can potentially convicted felon as your nominee, you're sweating out the minutes, the hours, the days, the weeks when there's no conclusion to these trials. Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. First, I think that whether or not you support or do not support Donald Trump, everybody should want a speedy trial, because if you're one of his supporters, you would want to see him exonerated in court just as much as you would want to see him found guilty in a court of law. I mean, I think that this should be something that no matter where people sit on the political spectrum, they should want to see resolved well before the election. Now, the uh, what Andrew was saying is really interesting, because I think if you actually look at the indictments and that you, if you look at some of the reporting about the investigation before Jack Smith was appointed, there is not a lot in the election interference indictment that really feels like a new fact that was found 
necessarily after Jack Smith took over the investigation. Uh, a lot of these things were uncovered by the January 6th committee. We saw people coming in and out of the grand jury box before Jack Smith became the special counsel. And then we saw that indictment actually come to a head and, and a grand jury uh, vote on that indictment really soon after Jack Smith became special counsel. So I think that it speaks to what Andrew was talking about in terms of there was there was some sort of delay happening and we don't know all the details. The, of course, because this is such an important and landmark case, there are going to be people reporting on this for you know years to come, no matter what happens in the case, to get every single one of those details about what was going on in the Justice Department. But in terms of the timeline, January 6th happened. Donald Trump was still in office, and that initial stage of the investigation happened in the last days of the Trump administration. It was a few weeks of basically all acting officials trying to put together a case, uh, an investigation as quickly as they could out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., and it would not be until March that Merrick Garland actually came in and took over that investigation. So you had a series of placeholder officials doing what they could to look at what happened on January 6th and who should be prosecuted. Now, to do something like move to and immediately look at the former president would be a risky move. And if you know anything about the government, this is not something that an acting official is going to take on. You want your career appointees in there. You want your career, sorry, you want your political appointees in there, not your career people. And we did not see political appointees take on the key roles in this case. U.S. Attorney in Washington, D.C., head of the National Security Division, for a while. It was really just Mayor Garland and Lisa Monaco in there trying to figure out what to do. And it did move, I would say, slowly if what you wanted was an investigation of Donald Trump. Instead, they really focused on the rioters. They focused on the people who were in the Capitol. Certainly, there's a lot of debate about whether or not it's the right thing to do. You know, I've spoken with some national security officials and some people who look at domestic terrorism who point to those hundreds and hundreds of prosecutions as the reason why we're not seeing people do things like show up at court with Donald Trump mm. and riot, why we're seeing relative calm, even though Donald Trump has certainly asked his supporters to come physically be there with him whenever he can. You know, we're not really seeing that. And we're seeing, again, a relative calm. So there, I think there are pluses and minuses to that strategy. But certainly, you didn't see a real look at Donald Trump until probably a year after January 6th. And again, to Andrew's point, if we had a legal system where you investigate, indict someone, and then go to court the next day, that's pretty fast. But that's not the system that we have. Even some of the, some of the decisions we're waiting for right now that feel like a long time, for example, the appeals court deciding whether or not Donald Trump is immune. That was about two weeks ago. It feels like forever. But in legal land, in our court system, two weeks is not very much time. So all of these things take a really long time. It was clear that the officials in the Justice Department yeah. in their first several months we're not thinking of yeah. the clock that way. Uh, yeah, th I mean, that, that is what I want to focus on, Andrew. Is that, I mean, yeah. you wrote an op-ed about this. They pursued a bottom-up strategy. And I think Kately Wright, Katie rightly points out that may have prevented, you know, masses of people acting on Donald Trump's suggestions that they riot or meet outside the courthouse or do whatever. But I'm not sure that the, the logic was entirely just kind of what's going to keep the peace. It was also some political considerations about how the department had become not not weaponized, but the, the subject of a weaponization conversation driven largely by Donald Trump. Right. You know, that that could be that they were trying to protect the department from these calls of it being politicized. Um, I, I'm going to crib from Chris Hayes when the indictment, the January 6th federal indictment came out. And he said, you know, in many ways, this is an indictment of the Justice Department. 
because the one thing that that showed was that was not a bottom-up indictment. There was nothing about the bottom that this wasn't cooperators flipping and, and giving you the top. This was by looking at the top and seeing what was going on um, because there was a disconnect between and they never actually made the case between these sort of people inside the Capitol who were attacking. Um, yes, they were instigated, but they, they, they didn't really show you know, direct communications. Um, so they could have made both. And this is one where it's not, to Katie's point, this isn't an either or. You can, of course, the cases against um, the January 6th rioters are righteous cases. The Proud Boys cases, the Oath Keepers, those are incredibly important, difficult, historic cases. And that there's nothing that should be taken away from the Justice Department. But this is... Um, a Justice Department that is very capable, they can do both. Um, so I think it was the wrong strategy. I think we are owed a huge debt in this country to the January 6th committee mm-hmm. because it really said this is the way you have to look at it. And in many ways, they both shamed the Justice Department because it's so unusual to have Congress ahead of the Justice Department. Having been at the Justice Department, that does not happen. Um, And it also sort of gave permission. Um, It sort of did both. Well, the American public had sort of understood quite clearly what happened, at least televisually. Exactly. Katie, what I mean, when it comes to these federal cases, the, the one that was perhaps most open and shut in terms of, you know, the charges are fairly straightforward. The evidence is relatively straightforward is the Mar-a-Lago case. And yet, if you look at what is happening down there, and we haven't actually talked about this in quite some time. I mean, Judge Eileen Cannon is not revisiting the trial schedule until March 1st. And and earlier this week, there was some back and forth with Trump and the special counsel. Trump is trying to expand the material that's uh, under the sort of in the discovery process to extend to effectively almost everybody in the federal government. It's a Mm -hmm. ridiculous um, it's a ridiculous motion. And I'm not a lawyer, but it seems so. But it's successful in terms of delay. And it seems like the judge in that case is very much playing ball with Trump's attempts to delay this. Yeah, I think that the judge in that case is doing is she first of all, she's not done anything that I think anybody would say is wrong, but she is being very deliberative. And to your point, she has decided to wait until the spring to hear any more motions on the case. Now, one of the reasons why this just naturally delays a case like this, which is straightforward in its argument and in some ways straightforward in its facts, is because it deals with so much classified information. So there are going to be a series of hearings and briefs, legal steps, just to figure out how to deal with classified information that have to be factored in to this schedule. And so by really not taking any action until the spring, necessarily the trial date she set is probably going to slip. And then to your point, Trump is now expand, trying to expand what he can get from the government. And by arguing over what evidence he can have, you know, that's something he's entitled to do, but it will again eat up time. This is something that we could see really slip toward election day. And so it's a it's a difficult thing because unless Eileen Cannon does something that she could actually get in trouble for, that other people could actually say this would force a recusal, this would force her off of the case, doing this with the calendar is not necessarily something that she could be removed for. And so by using the rules of the court, you're seeing various players just slow this down. Yeah, well, what's abundantly clear is the inordinate amount of pressure these judges are under to either come up with an, uh, you know, appellate ruling or to set the trial date or keep the trial trial train on track. I mean, it's something unlike anything the justice system's ever experienced before. Right. 
Andrew Weissman and Katie Benner, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate you. Still ahead this evening, we got some breaking news today about the economic vibe. Optimism about the Biden economy is increasing. And guess who's ready to run on that? But first, just days before the New Hampshire primary, Donald Trump is picking up yet another endorsement from a former South Carolina opponent. That is next. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console console. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. I voted for the former president twice. I don't think he can win. You have to be able to win in Georgia. I don't think he can win in Georgia. I think you have to be able to win in Pennsylvania. We need a president who will unite our country. We need Donald Trump. And that's why I came to the very warm state of New Hampshire to endorse the next president of these United States, President Donald Trump. I don't think he can win. You have to be able to win Georgia. You have to be able to win in Pennsylvania. Cut to, I am endorsing Donald Trump for president. That's the evolution of Tim Scott, who is now the 26th Republican senator to endorse Donald Trump as of this week, as of tonight, as of the last hour. Tim Scott became a senator in the very first place when he was appointed by South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in 2012. In response to Scott's endorsement, Haley released a statement today saying, interesting that Trump's lining up with all the Washington insiders when he claimed he wanted to drain the swamp. But the fellas are going to do what the fellas are going to do. Joining me now is Robert Gibbs, former White House press secretary from the Obama administration and an MSNBC political analyst. Also with me is James Pindle, political reporter for the Boston Globe. Um, Robert, first, let me get your (laughs) I still find it staggering just to play the sound of these Republican senators in 2016 and their endorsements of Donald Trump in the last few days. It is a real like logical disconnect. And yet it's completely unabashed. Donald, I mean, Tim Scott sounded like Bob Barker there, you know, endorsing Donald Trump with all his enthusiasm. Is there any price to pay for, you know, having once had a conscience and now throwing it out the window? No, I think all these guys are trying desperately to get on the right side of Donald Trump. Look, I I think, Alex, the reality is we're probably about 96 hours away 
from Donald Trump wrapping up this nomination. And I think you're going to see an enormous stampede of elected officials, despite what they've said in the past, despite who they have voted for in the past, despite running against him in the past, lining up uh, with him. Uh, and I think you're going to see a probably a pretty great coalescing on the Republican side of this. Uh, but no, I don't think there's any price to pay, except if you don't end up on his good side. I mean, he he and his campaign have threatened those that did come out and endorse DeSantis uh, or others early with uh, basically saying when we get done with them, they'll be unelectable. You know, um, James, the, the endorsements, I think Robert rightly points out, are based in a, a sort of a combination of fear and opportunism. But they're also the result of a, a campaign that has been very focused on endorsements and that has, by all outside accounts, a very strong ground game in the states that count. And I wonder how you compare sort of, you know, what Trump did in Iowa, what he's doing with his endorsements to what you're seeing on the ground in New Hampshire and the strength of his campaign there. You're right, Alex. I mean, the two things that Donald Trump did not have in the 2016 primaries were endorsements, nor was it ground game. I remember they were bringing me into all their offices in Iowa and particularly here in New Hampshire. Say, here, James, look at our ground game. And it was completely non-existent. You know, the odd thing is the more time that Donald Trump spends in a courtroom, the more time his actual operatives that he hired who were actually seasoned versus last time get to spend building a ground game. And the more time they get to get these endorsements. Look, as Bob Dylan told us, you'll need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And that's exactly what's happening with these U.S. Senate endorsements and everything else. They are seeing the writing on the wall. And as Robert said, in a few hours, in a few days, this whole, there's a feeling here on the ground in New Hampshire, which is, by the way, very cold. Alex, when I greeted you the show, it was supposed to be inside, okay? I am outside for you. Uh, I will note that uh, but, but in a few days, this whole thing could be wrapped up. And there's a very real sense that's exactly what's at stake here in the next couple of days. Yeah. I mean, Robert, you're pointing to the 96 hours threshold here. Would you say that to Nikki Haley's face? I mean, what she's saying, Nikki Haley's saying we, we, do, we were strong in Iowa. We want to be stronger in New Hampshire. And we are going to go to my sweet state of South Carolina and be even stronger there. I wonder whether you think that that is just the typical kind of like optimism that you have to project as a candidate uh, or whether you think she actually might believe that. Well, I think it's the the delusional side of optimism. No, I, I would I would say it to her face. I would ask her a few questions. I don't think she's running a campaign in New Hampshire or had a schedule in New Hampshire like she wants to win in New Hampshire. Uh, I, I don't think she's in danger of she she's look she's going to finish second uh, almost assuredly. Ron DeSantis gonna, won't finish in double digits. But you can't win the nomination finishing second. Uh, you're going to have to beat Donald Trump. And if you can't beat Donald Trump in a state with a huge number of independents early in this process, then I don't know when you're going to beat him. Uh, and so I, I don't know that she's I don't think there's any way she's going to make this to South Carolina. There's too long, quite frankly, for any of these candidates who won't have any momentum coming out of these first two states to try to keep up with Donald Trump. Um, James, in Iowa, a lot of folks said, yes, Trump won by a prohibitively large margin. But for an incumbent president, it actually wasn't that large. And the turnout was really low and not just because of the weather. It's because Republican primary voters are told it's a foregone conclusion that Trump's going to be the nominee. Do New Hampshire voters feel the same way? I mean, what can you tell us about the sort of level of interest and enthusiasm on the ground there? You know, it's so wild about that question. And Alex, I'm so glad you asked it. On the one hand, this is unlike, this is my seventh New Hampshire primary. 
This is unlike any that I've ever covered. It is so low energy, it's bonkers. At the same time, uh, we have every prediction from the Secretary of State to those on the ground and in the campaigns who predict we're going to have a record-breaking turnout on Tuesday. Now, what does that actually mean in the context of the campaign? It's very unclear. Look, uh, Nikki Haley is trying to pull off a John McCain victory from 2000. George W. Bush was the big front runner nationwide, the big front runner in all the early states. He wins Iowa, comes to New Hampshire. John McCain win by, wins by 18 points. But there was two huge things there. Number one, John McCain crushed it with independence. Nikki Haley is doing better with independent voters. She's not crushing it. And second, John McCain was running even with Republicans with George W. Bush. And right here, uh, Donald Trump is absolutely destroying her among Republicans. So we're over halfway through New Hampshire primary week, and Nikki Haley has yet to get things going. In fact, in our latest daily tracking poll, the Boston Globe is doing with Suffolk University, she lost two points from yesterday. This is wow. not going the right direction for her. Wow. Losing two points days before the primary when you're already behind. Also, side note, John McCain wasn't the nominee in 2000. So <laughs> copying his playbook, maybe not so wise. James Pindle, it's freezing where you are. We thank you for your time. I'm not going to make you do more television, but Robert Gibbs, you're inside. Please stay with me. We have a lot more to get to tonight. The FBI still has a $500,000 reward for any information about who planted the pipe bombs outside the DNC and RNC headquarters the night before January 6th. It's still a whodunit. And this week, some conservatives say they have finally cracked the case. After months of hand-wringing, consumers are finally vibing on the economy. I mean that literally. What does it mean for Biden and 2024? That's next. Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Today, the S&P 500, a benchmark index for the U.S. stock exchange, closed on a record high. But even for Americans who don't own stocks, which is most of the country, the U.S. economy is very healthy. Unemployment is at its lowest level since 2022. Inflation is now coming down to 3.4 percent from a high of 9.1 percent in June of 2022. Wages grew last month by 5.2 percent. Gas averages $3.08 a gallon. But despite all that, many people, especially young people, especially young people on TikTok, have been feeling like the economy is giving recession. Data be damned, the vibes have just been off. They have been saying we are in a vibe session until maybe now. 
The University of Michigan Survey of Consumers shows a reading of 78.8 this month, its highest level since July of 2021. Does this mean the good vibes are back? If so, someone call the White House. Uh, oh, wait, never mind. Today I learned the consumer sentiment, and you guys saw it, surged by 29% in the last two months, the biggest two-month jump in 30 years. We got more to do. Back with me to talk about all this is Robert Gibbs. Robert, I, you know, I thought about the um, early part stage of the Obama administration, which you're well familiar with, when, you know, there was a constant sort of attempt to tell the American public, look, the, eco- the economy is going to rebound. We're going to be in turnaround. And then we are in turnaround. But it is very difficult to convince people of something using data unless they have emotional buy-in. And I wonder what lessons, if any, you think there are for the Biden administration in all this, seeing as we do, we do seem, do things are getting better and people are seemingly beginning to feel better about them. Yeah, look, it feels very analogous to 2009 and 2010, and even running into the re-election campaign in the early 2011. And, and I learned then, and I think the Biden administration is learning now, you can't get people to feel something and buy into something that they aren't feeling. And you can you can have all the numbers in the world, and every one of those numbers that you put up shows progress in the right direction. Uh, But this news today is huge. We haven't seen a jump like this in consumer, uh, positive consumer sentiment since before Bill Clinton was elected president. So it's been a long time. This is a real shot in the arm or potential shot in the arm for the reelection campaign, because I think what's most troubling when you look at a poll and people are asked, was the economy better under Trump or Biden? Trump Trump wins that question by a fairly sizable margin. And I'm hoping that as the months get closer to election and people begin to feel more and more like they are feeling in the last two months, that that number will close significantly. I mean, Biden's shadow boxing to a certain extent against vibes, right? That in and of itself is difficult. And then you look at what's happening on the Republican side in the primary You know, Biden's getting none of the advantages an incumbent usually gets, right? Nobody in the Republican primary is even trying to criticize Donald Trump. This is anything but, you know, politics is beanbag for Donald Trump. And I wonder how you think, you know, what what that does to a Biden campaign that effectively just kind of has to sit and wait to try and land any punches on Trump. And even that is unclear. Who knows if they're going to be debates? Yeah, I think on your first question on the economy, look, I think it is hard uh, to to try to wait and be patient on how people feel and, and on seeing some progress. And I think that's really important that, that that we're seeing that begin to feel like it's happening now. You know, I think with Trump, I think this is actually if Trump wraps this nomination up in four days, like I think he's going to, I think this is actually a good thing for the Biden campaign. I think a long campaign for Joe Biden to make this a choice election, a long campaign to remind people of what he's done, of the chaos uh, under somebody like Donald Trump, and to really clarify this election, I I think we'll get them in fighting shape. You know, you won't have any excuse not to be playing campaign every single day. And you got a long runway to make the choice clear for voters. So I think this, yes, you'd love to have three months of them just beating up all on each other and and coming out of this with a weak opponent. But I think there's actually a greater advantage to Joe Biden getting on with the general election campaign as early as he can with Donald Trump. Get dark Brandon, dust his coat off and get him out on the trail. 
Robert Gibbs, thank you, my friend, for your time this Friday evening. Coming up, a quarter of Americans, a quarter of Americans believe January 6th was an inside job. New evidence indicates that total includes at least one sitting United States senator who has even higher career ambitions. We're going to explain all that coming up next. Three years after the January 6th attack, one major mystery remains unsolved. Who placed pipe bombs outside the DNC and RNC headquarters the night before? Now, the FBI still has a $500,000 reward outstanding for any information leading to who did it. And a bunch of prominent conservatives this week believe they have finally cracked the case. It was the FBI. Did someone say, we got to make it look like MAGA is trying to take over the government? So let's get a riot going and let's make sure we leave two bombs behind. The largest global purveyor of fake information is the United States government at this point. But it's yet more evidence that they are lying about these pipe bombs. Why are they lying? Well, because they were involved in it, obviously. Obviously, obviously, obviously. Alt-right activist Jack Posobiec this week pointed out to his nearly two and a half million followers that the DNC pipe bomb looks almost identical to training devices used by the FBI. And that tweet was reposted by a sitting United States senator, Mike Lee. Lee further weighed in, asking, was anyone ever arrested for these? That's a pretty serious crime. I can't imagine it went uninvestigated. Just to be clear, the FBI spent several years investigating the bombs to no avail. And unsolved does not necessarily mean inside job. But if you're Mike Lee, January 6th has conspiracy written all over it. A few months ago, Senator Lee suggested that a pro-Trump Capitol rioter caught on camera was, in fact, an undercover federal agent. Lee promoted this photo as proof that the man at the bottom of the picture was no MAGA supporter, but rather a federal agent brandishing his law enforcement badge. Except he was not holding a badge. He was holding a vape pen. Confronted later about that inconvenient truth, Senator Lee admitted that Lyons probably wasn't a federal agent. Admittedly, confusing seditious vapors for undercover FBI agents is sort of par for the course for Republicans like Senator Lee, who apparently enjoy walking on the wild side. After all, Mr. Lee was an early advocate of the fake electors plan and discussed the plot with Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. So it's perhaps not surprising then that Senator Lee last week wholeheartedly endorsed Donald Trump's bid for the presidency, saying unironically that he was choosing order over chaos. Senator Lee joins 25 of his Republican colleagues in the Senate who have endorsed Donald Trump as of this evening. But his special distinction is that he was twice on Trump's shortlist to be a Supreme Court justice. In 2018, Senator Lee interviewed for the seat that eventually went to Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And with Justice Clarence Thomas approaching 80 and Justice Samuel Alito hitting 74 this year, who knows? If Donald Trump is reelected in November, the man who believes January 6th was an inside job could just get another crack at a seat on the highest court in the land. 
We have one more story for you tonight. House Republicans are the dog that caught the car and then jumped in front of it. More on that right after the break. Congress averted disaster once again this week by passing a short-term funding bill that will prevent a government shutdown, at least until March. In order to pass this bill, House Speaker Mike Johnson had to rely heavily on Democratic support after members of his own party threatened to tank the proposal, which is now apparently the Republican playbook for getting anything done in Congress. Lean on the Democrats to bail you out. And Speaker Mike Johnson, not yet three months on the job, is finding himself in the very same position as his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy. And like McCarthy, Johnson, too, is on the verge of being kicked out of the speaker's chair for capitulating to the reality of basic governance. I let Speaker Johnson know that in no way, shape and form will I support any type of CR and that if he moves forward with a separate deal trading our border security, weakening H.R. 2 in exchange for $60 billion to Ukraine, I told him yesterday in his office that I would vacate the chair. The deal that Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about is one that Democrats are agreeing to make, and it includes massive concessions on immigration policy in exchange for funding for Ukraine. Joining me now is Brendan Buck, communication strategist and former press secretary to former House Speaker John Boehner. Brendan, it feels like this negging this immigration deal for Ukraine funding is Republicans cutting off their nose to spite their faces. Do you think they realize what they're doing here? Well, there's some people who want to get something done and some people who who like to have an issue. Look, if you are ever going to solve immigration or at least make progress on immigration, you're a Republican. Now is the perfect time to do it. Um, there's this perception in the Republican Party that if you just hold out and you wait for the stars to align and all the Republicans to control everything, that you get everything we want. That doesn't work. We, we tried that in 2018. It led to the longest government shutdown in history. Um, the problem is you have some people who will only accept what they deem as perfect, or you have some people who simply don't want to give a win, want to have the issue. So I am highly, highly skeptical that whatever the Senate produces has any chance in the in the House whenever it comes along. Because at this point, Mike Johnson's hanging on for dear life, and he doesn't really have any capital to spend to bring up something controversial like this. Well, you don't get perfect in politics, right? That's just, it's a fantasy. And it, I think, also reveals that they're not actually interested in governance. This is a, this is a sweet deal for Republicans. Lindsey Graham says you're not going to get a better deal on immigration. At the same time, they're talking about getting rid of Mike Johnson, who hasn't made it, you know, 100 days on the job. Do you think he lasts until Valentine's Day? I think if you were to bring up something like this, it's it's very likely that they would at least move to to remove him. Now, I think that's an open question whether Democrats would do what they did uh, with with Kevin McCarthy, where they all voted to boot him out. I, there's already rumblings that Democrats might vote to keep Mike Johnson in uh, in his position uh, if he if he were to bring this up. Now, that's a very untenable position if you're the Republican Speaker and you are keeping your job because of the minority. You never want to find yourself in that position. But let's be honest. A lot of this is about Ukraine. There is a huge uh, movement in the House to end all support for Ukraine. And they put up the, this pretext that there needs to be really strong border reform to, to do anything like that. And surprising a lot of people, they might be able to get that deal. Um, but now, now they don't know what they're going to do about it. So I think there's going to be a lot of fear mongering and there's going to be a lot of misinformation about what this Senate deal actually looks like uh, to scare people. And again, I just think Mike Johnson 
has enough trouble on his plate that he realizes that this is not going to be worth it. It's not a must do thing and probably in his mind. So he'll find some reason, I think, to uh, to ignore this. It'll be he'll have incredible pressure to bring it up. But I think he's probably going to realize that he probably wants his job more than anything. Well, yeah. And he's apparently been consulting with Donald Trump on the deal, who's waving him off of it, which really goes to the heart of all of this. This is about not giving Joe Biden any kind of legislative win in an election year, is it? Isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, you you bring up the most important thing, the Donald Trump factor. I mean, he's a person who could tank this deal instantly. And we've already had uh, one House Republican from Texas say he doesn't want to do anything to give Joe Biden a win at this point, saying it out loud. Um, you know, it, it's really frustrating. We've tried to do this time and time again over the years. This immigration issue is the hardest one we deal with. Eric Kanner was the majority leader in 2014 and lost his job, lost his primary over this one issue. And they all remember that. And they're all scared of people in their own districts about this issue. We seem to never be able to make progress because they all think someday that perfect border bill is going to come along and, and we're going to be able to get it all done at once. And as you said, that's just not how things work. In the meantime, immigration, number one issue for voters in the Iowa caucus. But don't do anything about it. Brandon Buck, my friend, thank you for this Friday night appearance. I appreciate it. That is our show for tonight.